All right, let's get into the preaching of the word today. We are continuing in our series after God's own hearts, uh, but today is going to be slightly different. What we've been doing in this series is we've been looking at David's life and we've been drawing characteristics out of David's life that we can apply to our life, that we could be a people after God's own heart. Today, though, we're actually going to look at the promise over God's life. And what we can learn from the promise that was upon David's life from God uh, and, and how that applies to our life today. And so this is part five of the series, and we are looking at David, the covenant king. David, the covenant king. So if you've got your notes, you can find your notes inside the bulletin on our church app or they're attached to this video on our website, or they're attached to this audio podcast uh, if you're listening to this on audio. Here's our big picture point today, is that God's covenant with King David foreshadowed our covenant relationship with King Jesus and the salvation and life we have in his kingdom. Right, So we're going to look at the covenant over David as king and how that covenant played out in Jesus. And that today, ultimately, we're going to rejoice in that salvation that we have in Jesus. Amen? So we're going to nerd out a little bit on some Bible doctrine. But by the end, we're going to be rejoicing together. I want this to be an uplifting message. I want this to be encouraging. I want it to be a message that's going to sustain us. But I also want it to be a message that's going to give us a greater understanding of the whole story of Scripture and how God was at work from start to finish. So when David became king, now we know that David was anointed as king while he was still a young teenager and that it still took a long time before he actually got to the throne. You know, he killed Goliath. Uh, he served uh, King Saul, but then King Saul went crazy and tried to kill him, and so David's running for his life. And finally... King Saul was killed in battle. And so we just think, oh, well, then David took over. Well, it was a little more complicated than that because King Saul still had children who thought they should be king because that's how a kingdom worked. And so when King Saul was dead, God told David, go to Hebron. And David went to Hebron, and there in Hebron, the tribe of Judah recognized him as the king. The rest of Israel, however, did not. They recognized Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Yeah, say that five times fast. All right. They recognized him as king over the rest of Israel, and that created a, a divide in the kingdom of Israel, which set off a civil war, and there was a civil war that lasted for years. Uh, but over the course of seven years, uh, David's kingdom grew stronger, while Ishbosheth's kingdom grew weaker. Until eventually David overcame the house of Saul. And they brought, David, um, uh, they brought David in and the elders of Israel recognized him as the king over all of Israel. But it was seven and a half years after he was recognized as the king of Judah. He was recognized as the king over all Israel. And the elders recognized the prophetic word that had been spoken over him by Samuel so many years earlier. So David became king. The first thing he did as king is he took back the city of Jerusalem. And he declared it to be the capital. He called it the city of David. 
and other nations around began to pay tribute to David, including uh, the king of Tyre, who sent him a bunch of wood, enough wood to build a palace. And so David built a palace for himself, and he, he expanded the city of Jerusalem and strengthened its defenses and had finally realized that God had fully established his kingdom. Right? So this wasn't an overnight thing. It took years. At that point now, David said, now that my kingdom is established and I am strong and I have a palace of my own, I want to build a building for God. I want God's presence to dwell in a building also. And so he tells Nathan, hey, I want to build a building. Nathan says, sure, go ahead. But then that night, God gives him a different prophetic word, and he goes and he shares it with David. And it's in that prophetic word that Nathan shared to David that we see the Davidic covenant, right, the covenant that God made with David. And that's what we're going to study today. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to pick it up here with Nathan prophesying the word of the Lord over King David. Verse 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Let's stop right there. Because the first thing God does before he makes the covenant promise is he reminds David what he's already done. And I think we can learn from what God had already done for David. Right? The first thing we see in our notes is this. God took David from the pasture to the palace. Right? God says, I took you from where you were tending sheep in the pasture, and I made you ruler over my people Israel. So he took David from the pasture to the palace. What does this mean to us? It means that God is able to fulfill every promise he has made over our lives. We've just got to stick with him in the journey. We don't need to rush it. We don't need to try to do it ourselves. We don't need to circumvent God's timeline. We just need to stick with God in the process. The timeline probably took a lot longer than David wanted, and there was probably a lot more hardship in there than David would have preferred. But God still fulfilled his promise, right? God is able to fulfill his promise. Whatever he has spoken over your life, he will do it in his time. Second thing God said is he said, I was with you everywhere you went. I was with you everywhere you went. Listen, God is with us everywhere we go. That's why uh, we've been emphasizing this practice of the daily office. Because by practicing the daily office all throughout the day, we can be aware of the presence of God in our lives all throughout the day. And listen, when we are aware of God's presence all throughout the day, what's going to happen? We're going to pray more. Because if we recognize that God is there all the time, we're going we're gonna to talk to him more. We're going to trust more. We're going to believe in him more. We're going to have more faith. We're going to have more boldness. Because, man, if God's with me, I'm going to go out and do what God said. We're going to worship more. Because if we're aware of the presence of God more, we're going to love on him more. And we're going to love other people more, right? So the more aware we are of the presence of God, the more we're going to see that flow through our life. God is with us wherever we go. And finally, God said, I have cut off all your enemies. Come on, God has cut off all our enemies. Now, we know in the New Testament that the enemy is not flesh and blood, 
but the spiritual forces of darkness. It's the devil and all his minions and all that they would want to do. And so we know that no spiritual force of darkness has any authority over our lives. God has cut off every enemy. Any attack that God allows in our life, he allows it because he knows it's going to make us stronger. And we learn that from the book of Job, right? God allowed Job to be attacked, but he allowed it because it made Job stronger. No spiritual force of darkness has any authority over our lives. So before we even get into the promise, man, we can be encouraged from what God had already done. Thank you, Jesus. Now let's continue as God gets into the covenant that he is making with David. We pick it up halfway through verse 9. God says, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So what is the Davidic covenant? You can see in your notes there, the Davidic covenant is this, that God would establish an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne through David's family line. That's a very straightforward and simple way to put it, that God would establish an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne through David's family life. This covenant promise also included a couple of other things. One, God said this. God said, I'm going to make a place of peace for Israel. So when you read through a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, and especially the Messianic prophecies, you're going to see that always tied together with the Messianic prophecy was this promise of a place of peace for the nation of Israel. The second thing that, that God promised in the midst of this is he also said, David, I'm going to make a house for you. Now, this is interesting, right? Because this whole conversation started because David wanted to make a house for God. And God actually comes back and says, no, David, I'm going to make a house for you. And you're like, well, wait a minute. You just said David's palace was already built. Well, when God said, I'm going to make a house for you, God wasn't talking about a building. God was talking about a family dynasty. God was talking about the generations that would come from David and that God would build up those generations. Why is this significant? Because in this moment, David was focused on a building, but God was focused on people. And I think we need to remember that as a church. Buildings are tools. They're important, and, and they work well. We like having a building. But remember, buildings are just tools. We should not get stuck focusing on buildings. We should be focused on people. 
God said, listen, David, that's great that you want to build me a building, but the truth is I haven't had a building since I've created this planet. But I want to focus on people. I want to focus on people. And then he gets into the messianic promises. Now, here's the thing. We've actually discussed this before as a church, that when you read Old Testament prophecies, you've got to read them with the understanding that there was a present-day fulfillment of that prophecy in the day that it was spoken, and there was a future fulfillment of that prophecy. So as we read this covenant promise, and we read it thinking, well, it's talking about Solomon, right? Solomon would become king. Solomon would build the temple. And so this prophetic word was fulfilled in Solomon. Yes, that was the present day fulfillment. But there was also a messianic fulfillment, right? What were the messianic promises? Well, first off, he said, your descendants will build me a temple. So we know that Solomon built a temple, but we also know this, that when Jesus was walking around, in John chapter 2, it says, Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, Jesus built a temple. So we see that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecy that the descendants would build a temple. It also says, he will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. Again, this applied to Solomon, but this also applies to Jesus. When Jesus was on trial, it says they all said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, Yes, I am. And then I love this. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, when the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you, and again... I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. The writer of Hebrews is actually quoting 2 Samuel chapter 7 and confirming that it was talking about Jesus. And finally, the messianic promise was that he would have an eternal throne. Continuing on in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So everything that was referring to Solomon was also referring to Jesus. And I want to show you guys this. I told you we were going to nerd out a little bit here. All of the Old Testament prophets recognized that this covenant over David was a messianic promise. They recognized that. Check this out. Isaiah chapter 9. This is a verse we always read at Christmas time. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Right? So Isaiah is recognizing the Messiah to come is going to sit on the throne of David. A couple chapters later, Isaiah wrote this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, 
Jesse being David's father, the stem being David. A shoot will spring forth from David, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Right? They recognize the Messiah is going to come from David. Jeremiah the prophet wrote this in Jeremiah 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. There's that tying together, the Messiah and the place of peace for Israel being tied together. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne. How about Ezekiel? Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. Well, obviously, when Ezekiel is writing this, David has been dead for generations, so he's not specifically talking about David. He's equating the Messiah with David. So we have this covenant that God makes with David, but we know it's a messianic covenant that David will have an eternal throne. Well, we know that the family line of David no longer sits on the throne, but King Jesus does. So the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is King Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise. Luke chapter 1, when the angel finds a young Mary to prophesy over her that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah. Listen to what the angel said. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Whoo, come on. Somebody should be getting excited right now. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and here's where I want to really tie everything together, that God always had a plan from Abraham to David to Jesus. You say, well, what do you mean, pastor? Well, We just read as part of the Davidic covenant, God said to David, I will make your name great. You know who the last human God said that to before David was? Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. The same thing God declared over Abraham, God declared over David. And then what did we just read the angel said about Jesus? He will be great. From Abraham to David to Jesus. If that's not enough, what about this? When God was speaking to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, he said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
In Galatians chapter 3, Paul actually writes about this and said, the reason that God said seed in the singular instead of seeds in the plural is because the seed in the singular referred to Christ Jesus. And then what did we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 7? God spoke over David and your descendant who will come forth from you. Abraham would have a seed. David would have a descendant. Both of those words were fulfilled in Jesus. From Abraham to David to Jesus. And so Matthew, who of the four Gospels wrote the most Jewish of the Gospels, began his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 1 by saying this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? There are a lot of names in that family line, 42 to be exact. But Matthew honed in on two of those 42 names, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why? Because he wanted us to catch this that God's plan went from Abraham to David to Jesus. You see, in Abraham, God established a nation, a chosen people. Then in David, God established a kingdom. And then in Jesus, God put an eternal Savior on the throne of that kingdom and invited everyone to be a part of his chosen nation. Whew, come on, are you following me? So... The nation of Israel is no longer about who was born with Jewish blood in them. The nation of Israel is no longer about who is an ethnic descendant of Abraham. The nation of Israel is those who give their lives to King Jesus. And the Bible says that when we give our lives to King Jesus, we are grafted into that original olive tree, who Abraham was the root of that tree. But we are now grafted in. We are now the chosen nation. And the promise of a place of peace for the chosen nation is a promise for us from Abraham to David to Jesus. You say, okay, well, what's the big deal about that? Right? Are we just, are we just getting excited about knowledge? Are we just getting excited about revelation? No. Here's the thing. We can find encouragement and hope in the fact that God had a plan for our salvation. From the very beginning, right? The Bible says the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. God has always had a plan. And that plan includes that King Jesus would sit upon the throne. That plan includes that the Holy Spirit would always be with us because the moment we trust our lives to King Jesus, God deposits the person of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so that same declaration over David that God was with him everywhere he went is the same declaration over us. God is with us everywhere we go because the Holy Spirit is with us. And finally, God the Father would sit on the seat of judgment and welcome us into eternity with him. Come on, God's plan of salvation. God has always had a plan for salvation, and we know that God has always had a plan for our lives. We talked about it earlier in the service, that our days are numbered before even one of them happens, that our days are mapped out while we are still in the womb, that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives, that he could anoint us in the womb. He can call us to ministry in the womb. 
So God had a plan for salvation, and he had a plan for our lives. So let's take all of this revelation, and let's tie it together. How do we respond? Why was this such an encouragement for us? First, we can trust God in the process. We can trust God in the process. I want to talk to you about two sports teams. I want to talk to you about the Houston Astros and the Philadelphia 76ers, okay? Let's start with the Houston Astros. Right around 2012, the Astros recognized that they were a bad team. They were a bad major league team. They had a bad minor league farm system. They had no real hope. And so they set out on a plan to reshape their team, and that plan was dubbed the shortcut through hell. Basically, their general manager said, we want to get through hell as quickly as we can. So what that means is, for a couple of years, we are going to lose in epic proportions. And that's exactly what happened. For three years, the Houston Astros were the worst team in baseball. Lost over 100 games for three straight years. But they had a plan. And they kept encouraging their fans, we have a plan. And losing is a part of the plan. What ended up happening? The plan worked. For the last six years, the Houston Astros have been the best team in baseball. They've been to the World Series three times. And the two times they didn't make it to the World Series, they made it to the American League Championship game. This year, they're in first place again. They've been the best team in baseball. Now, they did cheat a little bit. And that's the weird thing about Houston cheating is they didn't need to cheat. The plan worked. But you know human nature. Sin took over and they cheated. But they redeemed themselves because they got back to the World Series after they had stopped cheating. Hallelujah. So the point is they had a plan and the plan worked. All right, follow me on this. Now let's talk about the 76ers. During the exact same time period, 2012 to 2014, the 76ers also had a very bad organization. And so they hired a general manager named Sam Hinkie. And Sam Hinkie came in and he said this, we are going to focus on the process. He says, you've got to trust us. And out of that came this, this uh, slogan, trust the process. And this slogan came to define the Philadelphia 76ers even to this day. And again, just like the Astros, the 76ers were the worst team in basketball for three or four years. But they kept saying, trust the process. That process eventually led them to drafting Joel Embiid, who has been one of the top five players in all of basketball for the last several years. In fact, Joel Embiid's nickname is now The Process. They call him The Process because all of that losing got them Joel Embiid. It also built up a great team around him. Now, unfortunately, the 76ers have not won a championship. They keep choking in the playoffs. But they've got a really good team that keeps going to the playoffs every year. And that's still their slogan, trust the process. Why am I talking about all of this? Because, listen, when you've got the worst team in the league for several years, that sucks to be a fan. But the organization kept saying, we have a plan. And as long as we know there's a plan, and at the end of that plan there's a breakthrough, 
then we can get through all the years of losing because we know the winning is coming. So let's bring that back to us. We just spent 20 minutes studying the Bible to come to a conclusion that God has a plan for our salvation and he has a plan for our lives. And if we can trust that God has a plan, then in our darkest moments, in the years of losing, when we feel like we're the worst in the league, when our lives are broken and we feel like we've got nothing going on, man, my life is not a well-run organization. We can trust the process. God has a plan, and that plan concludes with us winning the championship. There's going to be a breakthrough. We're not going to lose forever. And if we can trust that process, we can get through anything. Come on, we just read this morning in Romans chapter 15 in our Rooted Bible reading, we read this, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. We can have hope and encouragement through the difficult seasons because we know God has a plan. We know God made a promise, and we know God's going to fulfill it. Amen? So we're going to leave here encouraged today because we're going to trust the process. Right? The 76ers have Joel Embiid. We got Jesus. King Jesus is the process. Hallelujah. Come on. Woo, we can rejoice. Worship team, you guys can come back up today. What else can we do? We can keep Jesus on the throne. Right? The throne symbolically represents authority. King Jesus is upon the throne. He's upon the throne of the universe, right? Jesus declared before he ascended to heaven, all authority has been given to me. So King Jesus sits on the throne of the entire universe. But the amazing thing about God is that he gives us the choice whether we're going to have King Jesus sit on the throne of our lives. The throne represents authority. So what does that mean? That means that we have to make a decision every day that Jesus has all authority over our lives. I don't get to call the shots. I don't get to do what I want to do. I don't get to live my way. I don't get to construct my own plan. I'm going to put Jesus on the throne, and I'm going to let him have all authority. Right? We like to put ourselves on the throne. That's human nature. We also, we put sin on the throne, right? When we're stuck in an addiction or a behavior pattern that we can't break out of, it's because we've put that thing on the throne and we've given that thing all authority over our lives. Let's keep Jesus on the throne. Let's let him have all authority, right? Not one of God's good promises will fail. That's scripture. That's truth. It's one of the scriptures Robin and I memorized together. Come on. Not one of God's good promises will fail. All come to pass. But we've got to keep Jesus on the throne while we wait for those promises to come to pass. And finally, how do we respond to this? We rejoice in our salvation. Come on, we rejoice that God had a plan. We rejoice that before we were ever born, God was thinking of us and our salvation, that God was numbering the days of our lives, that God wanted to use us to advance his kingdom and do great things for the glory of his name. We can rejoice that God didn't leave us in our sin, but that he brought Jesus into this world to die on our behalf, to fulfill the Davidic covenant so that he 
would sit on a throne and we would have a Savior and we would not be condemned by our sins. We can rejoice in that. Amen? Come on, will you stand together with me? Thank you, Jesus. I don't know if I lifted anybody else up, but I lifted myself up. I'm going to leave here today on fire. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, so that's what we're going to do today. I want to pray over you, and then we are going to rejoice in our salvation. We're going to introduce a new song to the church, and this song uh, is a beautiful picture of us confessing our sins and our sins being forgiven, and then the God the Father welcoming us into the family of heaven. What a beautiful picture. What a reason to rejoice. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that the Bible gives us revelation that you had a plan, Lord. And Lord, we stand and we find hope and encouragement and strength in that plan. So Father, first I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would persevere that we would continue to press forward. We would not give up on the promises of God. We would not give up on the plans of God over our lives. We would stand firm because we trust you, Lord. We trust in your plan. And so, God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is inside of us, carrying us through, revealing truth to us, strengthening us and encouraging us, God. We will press through in Jesus' name. I pray for those today who do not have Jesus on the throne of their lives. They have not surrendered their life and will to Christ as Savior. They have not received the wonderful gift that was purchased on the cross. I pray right now, here in person or anybody listening to this or watching this, that right now they would make a decision to surrender their life and will to Christ Jesus. They would receive the fullness of the promise of salvation. Everything you did, Lord, would be manifest in their lives right now. Their sins would be forgiven. Their spirits would be renewed. They would be born again with a new heart to love and to worship you, Lord. Deposit your Holy Spirit within them. Even right now, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. I thank you for the seeds that were sown today, seeds of truth, words of power. Oh, that can lift us up and sustain us. And I pray right now that a celebration would begin to bubble up within us, a rejoicing that we cannot contain. Because though we were sinners, our God loved us. And though we were sinners, our God sent his son to die on our behalf. Oh, that we would be restored to him. And we know that that hope never disappoints. It never disappoints. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, so right now, Lord, we enter into a party. We're going to rejoice in the salvation that we have. We're going to rejoice that we are the chosen nation of God. We are going to rejoice that we are a holy family called to live together in holy fellowship. We are going to rejoice that we have an eternity to walk in the goodness of our God. We thank you for all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone says amen. Amen. Let's rejoice together. Hallelujah.